Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. I'm going to go ahead and get started here. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome back to this is our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, every Sunday night, talking about a different sutra. Um, <clears throat> so tonight, I'm, I'm very excited about tonight. Because this is a brand new sutra to me. I have not read this sutra before maybe five, six days ago. I was kicking around different sutras for us to do. Uh, I was going to do maybe this one. I was going to do maybe that one. And then flipping through <clears throat> our good old Maharatnakuta Sutra, this heap of jewels sutra, I found number 33, the 33rd sutra in this collection. I, I, this is it. This is my favorite sutra. I'm saying it. <laughs> what? Wow. Yes. I know. But I've already said to a few people, this is the sutra I've been looking for forever in so many ways. I'm so excited about this sutra. It says a lot of things that I've kind of always wanted sutras to say. Sutras, you know, they get a little close and you just want them to say that next thing and they don't sometimes always do it. This one's great. So I don't know how long this will take us. It'll probably be more than one night. It might be two nights. It might be three Sundays. I don't know. But I want to go through it very carefully because I'm so excited about it. Um, I don't even really know where to start with this one. Uh, if it's your first time here, <clears throat> you should know that we have read a few sutras from this. This is a collection of sutras called the Maharatnakuta, which means the great heap or pile of jewels. And these jewels are the little... Uh, pieces of Dharma wisdom that the Buddha gave. Those are jewels. So this is a big pile of jewels. It's actually a pile of 49 little sutras. So if you know what a sutra is, a discourse of the Buddha, this is actually a collection of 49 sutras piled together. That is also the heap of jewels are these 49 jewels of sutras. Um, and we've read a bunch of different ones from this collection but this one, well, this is where it gets tricky. The translators of this version, this A Treasury of Mahayana Sutras, they chose to translate this as a discourse on ready eloquence. And so I want to start with that because that's not really the name of this sutra. The name of this sutra is actually the Vimaladana Bodhisattva Sutra. And actually, if you wanted to get really technical, it's actually the Bodhisattva whose name is Vimaladana. Her, it's she is a she. Vimaladana is a she. And it's the sutra about her. And it's a tricky term in Chinese that there's, I, I was trying to find a good English equivalent. And it's kind of like a retort or a rejoinder, if you're familiar with the word rejoinder, it's, it's a reply, and a, a, like a response to something, but with a little bit of a, like a little jab, too. So it's got a slight, 
like putting down of that idea. So it's not just a response, like a back and forth a response. It's almost kind of like a putting down your idea and then putting my idea. It's that kind of, so a retort of some sort. Um, so it's a counter argument, if you will. And so this is the counter argument or the retort of the bodhisattva named Vimaladana. But what happens is, is that like many Mahayana sutras, at the end of the sutra, the Buddha is asked, what should we call this sutra? This happens in a lot of Mahayana sutras where they ask the Buddha at the end, yes, this is a great sutra, what should we call it? And he will often rattle off like, this is the super duper sutra, this is the super duper sutra that nobody's ever seen before, this is the super duper sutra that nobody could ever see before. And it's sort of these superlative titles that most of the time are not meant to be taken as the, su- the name of the sutra. They're sort of meant to be like laudatory, if, in, if you will. This is one of those cases where at the end of it, the Buddha says, oh yeah, this sutra should be, should be called a discourse on ready eloquence. And so that's cool. So they're not wrong in, in calling the sutra a discourse on ready eloquence. The problem is that this sutra has a title. Like, it has a title. It, just like the Lotus Sutra has many other names, but it's just called the Lotus Sutra. Many sutras are like that. And so this one, the actual Chinese name is this woman, this girl, actually, named Vimala Dana. And that name, Vimala, means stainless. Yeah, it could be translated as pure, but it's not pure it's actually without flaw or without a stain or blemish. That's what this goal. Vimala might be familiar to you if you were here or if you've read the Vimalakirti Sutra. So here's the thing. This is why I'm so excited about this whole new sutra that I've never really gotten into before is this whole discourse on Vimala, the stainless so the Vimalakirti is a discourse or a conversation about the stainless, Vimala. And what Kirti means is fame. And so it's very interesting, actually, that Vimalakirti is the bodhisattva who has stainless fame. That's interesting in a very modern context of the sort of the taint of fame if you will, modern problems with fame, all of that. And so Vimalakirti is known sort of for being famous, but in a way that's without ego, that it's in a way without the stains of greed, hatred, delusion, and all of that. We read the Gangutara Sutra. And what I didn't pick up on, because this is all new to me, I'm, I'm learning like all of us, the the discourse on Gangotara, the laywoman Gangotara, was actually called flawless purity, vimala purity. I'm not quite sure what the word purity is in that, in that sutra, but it's that same idea of the vimala, the stainless, right? So this gal, vimala dana, she is stainless dana, giving, like we do over there, giving donation, So this is a discourse about stainless giving, and it has a lot of echoes of the Vajra Sutra, also known as the Diamond Sutra, which is a discourse on another type of giving. 
not giving necessarily stuff, but giving maybe wisdom, giving in all kinds of ways. So this is going to be a discourse along those same Vajra Sutra lines of discoursing about giving, but in this really interesting, non-dualistic, shall we say, kind of a way. All right. Um, this is going to be a tricky sutra to read for all kinds of reasons. So one reason is, is that this sutra has, for a variety of reasons, people do this, but they've chosen to translate her name as pure giving. That's it. So unfortunately, again, if you're sort of familiar with Vimalakirti, it loses something if you don't know that this gal girl is named Vimaladana because they're actually in in a sort of dialogue with each other okay and so I'm going to attempt to when I read this everywhere it says this gal's name pure giving I'm going to actually try to give you her real name so we keep on track of who this is the other place where this becomes a problem and it's one of the reasons why I would uh, like to do my own translation of this and it's why I always have been trying to do translations. You'll notice over here our list, these are eight bodhisattvas that appear in this sutra. And there's two famous ones, Manjushri, who's the bodhisattva of transcendent wisdom or, you know, pranya, and Avilokiteshvara, who's the bodhisattva of compassion or karuna. And because they're kind of famous, this translator just gives you the, the Sanskrit. You, you know Avilokiteshvara. You know Manjushri. But these other bodhisattvas, for some reason, they choose not to just give you the Sanskrit, but they try to translate it so that you know what the Sanskrit means. Which, trust me, in a sutra like this, that's very helpful. Because, in a way, all of these characters, these eight uh, monks or shravakas that appear in the sutra, and these eight bodhisattvas, yeah, they're characters, but they're meant to sort of represent something. And so insofar as they represent these values or these virtues, it's helpful for you to know that the Maladana is having a discourse with the bodhisattva whose name means no deluded views. If you had the Sanskrit name, that would be nice, but you might miss it. But there's also a problem in that these you know, it gets tricky to read no deluded views, said to free from hindrance. It's like, wait, what are we talking about? It, you, you miss that they're sort of people in that way. So it, it's tricky. I haven't dug up all the Sanskrit for these people, so I am going to leave these as they appear. But I just want you to know that there's this problem going on. There's a problem going on with our main protagonist, her name, and there's a problem going on with these bodhisattvas' names. And there's a problem going on with this sutra kind of wanting to sweep our young Vimaladana under the rug. Because the reason why this, this sutra is called, her, this is her sutra. And they like sort of tried to like sweep her under the rug by saying, well, you know, it's a discourse on ready eloquence. No, it's a discourse on this Vimaladana gal. All right. So I'm going to do my best to sort of um, bring her back to her proper place in the sutra because it's unbelievable what happens in the sutra. Yeah, no. Um, did you just equate something about statelessness with non-duality? Yeah. 
Sure. Sure. No, I mean, it's sort of actually what all of this is about, what the sutra is about. So I'll give you the, the quick one. So in this idea of non-duality, and we've talked, we talk about this every, every Sunday, and I'm always saying that Buddhism is like way, way beyond non-duality. And what I mean by that is in this, what the Buddhists, at least the Mahayana Buddhists, and I need to stress that, the Mahayana Buddhists mean by stainless well, let me back up to our laywoman Gangotara for a second. And that was our stainless purity. That was her deal. And in that discourse, what we were supposed to walk away with is this. If I judge this as impure and this as pure, that's impure. <laughs> To be dualistic and to do that is impure. So to not discriminate between the pure and the impure, that's pure. That's stainless purity. That is a very subtle shift. And it's along the lines of there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's an enlightened person that understands that. That's a little paradox that there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's an enlightened person that understands that. You should, or at least the logical side of your mind, should be like, time out. You just said there's no such thing as an enlightened person. Right? So how can there be an enlightened? Yeah, that's the logical side of your mind. But the other side, the more enlightened side of your mind, that's the one that knows there's no, such, there's no difference between enlightenment and unenlightenment. Again, this idea of saying, oh, you're pure. Oh, you're so perfect and beautiful and you're ugly and impure. That's impure, right? So now in terms of giving, stainless giving, this is going to be the idea of like, oh, I gave you this. That's so wonderful. No, 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 no. That's actually not wonderful. For me to give you something is not wonderful. That is totally stained giving. Stainless giving as we're going to be taught, is the giving that does not, is not dualistic, does not have the, the, the giver, the, the receiver and the gift, is non-dualistic in that way. Yeah. But if you understand about the pure and impure, and that this idea of like not distinguishing between pure and impure, that's pure, right? It's also that kind of weird paradoxical logic, but that it, there's a part of you that it should make perfect sense. Yeah. I'm sorry. <clears throat> the part about the giver and the receiver and the duality, mm -hmm. that there is some sort of pure non-duality. Mm -hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. The, what, and again, she's, her name means this, so we'll get into it. But the idea of the giving where I give you this okay. is considered dualistic and problematic and reifies all of the problems of self and other and all of that. So there's a form of giving in which I release from my attachment to all of this. Okay. And then you, but it's not me giving you. So by the time it gets here, it's not from you anymore. Like well, and it's not to you either in that way. Oh, okay. So, but again, the sutra is about that. So these are subtle ideas. And again, the reason why this is my new favorite sutra is because she so clearly, so eloquently puts all these ideas. 
Um, I think that's all we need to know. One other just interesting little thing, this uh, Chinese character, go, which means defiled in some sense or stained in that sense. If you know your Heart Sutra, and the Heart Sutra says that all of these dharmas neither arise nor see, are neither defiled nor pure, this is the bugo, bujing, neither defiled nor pure. This is that same sense of defilement. And so when the Heart Sutra says all dharmas are neither defiled nor pure, it's referring to that non-duality. And that's also at play here with this wugo, stainless. Let's do it. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was dwelling in the garden of Anatha Pindika in the Jetta Grove near Shravasti, accompanied by a thousand great monks. Except for Ananda, those monks were all arhats. Having ended all their defilements, they no longer suffered any affliction. They were at ease with everything. They had done what they had set out to do. They'd laid down the heavy burden of samsara, acquired benefit for themselves, broken the ties of existence. Through right knowledge, they had achieved liberation, both from passions and from ignorance. They were mentally free. <clears throat> Their minds, like great elephant kings, subdued. They had reached the other shore and had entered the Eightfold Liberation. That's the end of the opening paragraph, and that is about these arhats, worthy ones, who, all except for Ananda, of course, had all achieved this exalted state of release from suffering, release from desire. That's the, the name of the arhat game. All right? And this sutra is sort of a discourse on the difference between an arhat and a bodhisattva. And so last week, I believe it was, somebody might even ask me, what's the difference between an arhat and a bodhisattva? This sutra is dealing with that idea. So that's a description of an arhat. And I wanted to note, if you heard all of that, I want you to note, there's nothing derogatory in there. There's nothing downputting in there. Arhats are revered renunciants, right? Later on, there becomes this kind of nonsensical discourse about how Mahayana is kind of against Theravada and da-da-da. No, 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 no. Pure reverence for arhats. It's just the idea that there's a little further to go. Because also in the assembly, there were 12,000 bodhisattva mahasattvas, great beings, all adorned with merit and known to all who had attained non-regression and would eventually achieve Buddhahood in their next lives. Among them were Bodhisattva Precious Hand, Bodhisattva Treasury of Virtue, Bodhisattva Adorned with Wisdom, Bodhisattva Wish Fulfiller, Bodhisattva Abhilokiteshvara, Dharma Prince Manjushri, Dharma Prince Pleasant Voice, Dharma Prince Inconceivable Liberative Deeds, Dharma Prince Unobstructed Com Contemplation of All Dharmas, Bodhisattva Maitreya, Bodhisattva, giver of lightheartedness. Bodhisattva, no deluded views. Bodhisattva, exempt from miserable planes. Bodhisattva, no deluded deeds. Bodhisattva, free of darkness. Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances. Bodhisattva, adorned with eloquence. Bodhisattva, awesome wisdom and precious merit. Bodhisattva, golden flower, flower of brilliant virtue. And Bodhisattva, unobstructed thought. One morning... 
eight great shravakas and eight great bodhisattvas, wearing monastic robes and holding their begging bowls, entered Shravasti to beg for food. They were the virtuous Shariputra, the virtuous Madhuyayana, the virtuous Mahakashepya, the virtuous Shibuti, the virtuous Purnamaitreya, Purnamaitreya, the virtuous Ravata, the virtuous Anirudha, the virtuous Ananda, Dharma Prince Manjushri, Bodhisattva no deluded views, Bodhisattva precious form, Bodhisattva exempt from miserable realms, Bodhisattva free from all hindrances, Bodhisattva Abhilokiteshvara, Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence, and Bodhisattva no deluded deeds. On the way, each of them had one thought in his mind and discussed it with the others. The virtuous Shariputra said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause all sentient beings in the city to hear the Four Noble Truths. The virtuous Madhuyayana said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause all sentient beings in the city to be free from all demons' influence. The virtuous Mahakashyapya said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause all sentient beings in the city who give me food to receive endless rewards until they achieve nirvana. The virtuous Subhuti said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause the sentient beings in the city who see me to be reborn in heaven or as humans, to enjoy all pleasures and to suffer no more. The virtuous Purna Maitreya said, when I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a samadhi that will cause all those in the city who follow wrong paths, such as Brahmacharans and naked ascetics, they will all acquire right view. The virtuous Ravata said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a samadhi that will cause all the sentient beings in the city to enjoy the pleasure of non-disputation. The virtuous Anirudha said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a samadhi that will cause all sentient beings in the city to recognize the retributions of karma from their past lives. The virtuous Ananda said, When I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a samadhi that will cause all sentient beings in the city to remember all the dharma they have ever learned. Dharma Prince Manjushri said, I will cause all the doors, windows, walls, implements, trees, branches, leaves, flowers, fruits, clothes, and necklaces in the city of Shravasti to make sounds teaching emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness, egolessness, nothingness, avoidance of play words, and the absence of self-entity. Bodhisattva No Deluded Views said, I will cause everything seen by sentient beings in Shravasti who deserve supreme enlightenment to become a Buddha image. And in this way, I will cause them all to attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment without fail. Bodhisattva Precious Form said, I will cause prodigious quantities of the seven treasures to appear in the houses of all the people of Shravasti, regardless of their caste. Bodhisattva, exempt from miserable plains, said, 
I will cause the sentient beings of Shravasti who are destined to fall into miserable planes of existence after death to undergo slight sufferings in their present life instead and to be liberated quickly. Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances, said, I will cause the sentient beings in Shravasti to completely rid themselves of the five hindrances. Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara said, I will cause the imprisoned sentient beings in Shravasti to be freed quickly. Those who are about to be killed to be saved, and those who are frightened to become fearless. Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence said, I will cause all the sentient beings in Shravasti who see me to obtain eloquence so that they can exchange questions and answers in wonderful verse. Bodhisattva, no deluded deeds, said, I will cause the sentient beings in Shravasti who see me to have no deluded views and to attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment without fail. Discussing their thoughts in this manner, the eight Shravakas and the eight Bodhisattvas arrived at the gate of the great city of Shravasti. Okay, questions? Yeah. Yes. Most of these guys seem to be doing their specialty. Yes. I was a little confused by um, the austerities because it sounded like like the like people would have unending. How? Tell me about austerities. Would that really? Thank you. This is a very tricky one with Kashyapya. So you, this is just something that you need to grok. You just need to understand that this is going on. Agree with it, disagree with it, have feelings about it, definitely. But here's what's going on. There is this notion that one who undergoes austerities, fasting, classic like walking on hot coals, any kind of like austerity, self kind of, uh, denying austerity, uh, giving up sexuality, giving up sex is considered an austerity. If you do that, there is this idea, this is just an Indian karmic idea, not Buddhist per se, but the idea is, is that one who undergoes austerities, if I give that person something, the, 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 retrib- the karmic retribution or the punya or the reward of it is magn- magnified a zillion, gajillion times because of the person having done austerities. Meaning if somebody hasn't done austerities and I give them something, eh, it's a good deed, it's nice, whatever. But if somebody who's been doing austerities gives something, man, it's, you get so much back in return. And Kashapi was considered this guy that basically, like, you could give him something and it just, ding, 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 just starts raining money on you. You know, it's like that. So you see this relationship between, re, like, getting rewards for karmic behavior and austerities. They're, they're bound up in each other, and it's just a thing you have to understand that that's the mentality. All right. Um, is the adorned eloquence guy, um, is that about right speech? I, I just, I'm sort of surprised that he's in there. <clears throat> it's much more than right speech because the language of eloquence is more related to upaya, skillful means, this ability to speak in a certain way and it doesn't mean a specific way it means in the right way and so all of that is about eloquence and that reaching this stage basically a flow state where dharma just turns is the idea of eloquence so it's not yeah because right speech is more about speaking truth not falsehood avoiding gossip like much more mundane ideas of right speech
Dharma. Giving you the Dharma. And giving the Dharma is the, the operative. Yeah, that's the operative word there. Very quickly, too, this word, Sharaka, um, and this is an Arhat. These are also called Pharaohs or elders. So if you've heard of the Theravada, the, the Vada of the elders, Thera means elder, so the, the Vada, the path or the way of the elders. These are the elders, kind of representing the elders. Arhat is, again, this term that means worthy one, worthy of offerings because of things of like austerities. Only Ananda is not yet an Arhat. He's still in the learning phase, but all these guys are considered Arhats. And then just a word about this uh, term Shravaka. The term is voice hearer. It's like literally what Shravaka means. Vaka is voice. But, and usually how this is referred to is, is that these, the elders, the Theras, the old school Arhats, they heard the Buddha. They were like, they, they heard him. They, they were around him. They were like the evangelists in that sense of like they were with Jesus. The, these were with the Buddha, so they heard him. Maybe, maybe that's what Shravaka means. I want you, I want you to know, though, that another way of thinking of Shravaka, this is, gets to the more derogatory idea of these people, of like the Theravada being a lesser vehicle or a lesser path than the Bodhisattva. The critique is these are Shravakas because they just listen to the Buddha. They don't do it. They just listen. They're just like, oh, that's so great. Oh, the Four Noble Truths. Like they just hear it, but they don't do it. Whereas the Bodhisattvas like do it. But again, that's kind of a critique. So I just want you to, I want you to know that some people think Shravaka means that they're just uh, all, you know, they just hear it, but don't do it. I also want you to know that the term means that they were originally followers of the Buddha and heard the voice. But there's something else about this term. This term Shravaka eventually becomes part of the Manichaean tradition. If you've heard of Mani, Mani is a guy, a, a prophet, right up there with Muhammad, kind of the same neighborhood as Muhammad, kind of a, about, what, 300 years before Muhammad, hearing voices, revelations from God, angels, all this stuff. Manichaeism, Manichaeanism, if you don't know, is actually a weird Christian-Buddhist hybrid Totally interesting. From the year 210, I think Mani received his revelations around 210, 220, 230 AD, by the way. So this is pretty old. Mani basically set up a church, his church, in which there were monks that followed basically 250 rules. They were celibate. They read sutras. They were basically Buddhist monks. But then he had a lay class that were like uh, Christian clergy. And he had a whole Christian church hierarchy with the elect, the ecclesia, those that have been called out, the exclesia. So Manichaeanism is weird. So just, I just want you to know that Mani traveled all around. I mean, he went to India. He's in Middle East. He's going to the Levant, Syria. I mean, he's everywhere learning about Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism. And he put together his own religion. Mani is accredited with being the first person to knowingly create a religion where he was like, oh, those people are doing that and those people are doing that. Well, what if we just mash it up and have a super religion? 
He knowingly did this, and he basically built a church structure like the Christians, but with a monastic path like the Buddhists. And the whole theology, if you will, of Manichaeanism is based on hearing the voice of your twin soul from the realm of light. This is the realm of darkness, a shadow realm, of which we are just karma's shadow. We're just the dark shadow realm. We think it's great, but it's actually the dark shadow realm. And there's a pure light realm, and it's a mirror, like bizarre world, regular world. And so we all have a soul, a twin soul in the realm of light that's like, yo, yo, and we're deaf here in the shadow realm. But if you hear the call of your twin light soul, you become a shravaka, a voice hearer. That's what a voice hearer means in Manichaeanism, that you've heard the call of your twin soul. But again, Mani was a Buddhist, basically. In fact, in China, he's called the Buddha, the Buddha Mani, and Manichaeanism is considered a sect of Buddhism in China. So I just want you to know all of that because it's fascinating. Kind of. You, you can find it. It's around. It's sort of like there was this moment when, in which Manichaeism rose and then the Catholic Church came and decimated it. Um, who was it? Uh, one of those dudes. Augustine, I think. Well, Augustine was a Manichaeanism. He was a Mani- Manichaean for a long time and then he left came into the Catholic Church, and he was like, yeah, those guys are devil worshipers, they eat babies, all this stuff. When really, with the Manichaeans, they had a, like a baby Jesus ritual. They didn't eat babies, but the Catholics, anyways, long, long, long story. Too far afield, but this word shravaka has a lot of meaning. That's all I wanted to get across, is that it has so much interesting meaning to it. So... M-A-N-I is the dude's name. And then Manichaeanism, yeah, I don't know. Good luck. It's all a bunch of A's and E's and stuff. But, all right. Yeah. Is, is it okay to use the term Shavaka? Is it ever considered derogatory? You said some people equate it as it's just like, oh, they just... Yeah, I... Would it ever be derogatory? This will come up for me? Yeah, it wouldn't... A, it wouldn't come up. It doesn't come up. It's not a term that's usually used. And as far as your vocabulary lesson... I just want you guys to know that when you're reading sutras and you see Shravaka, they're referring to the elders, the theras, and versus the bodhisattvas. Yeah. In fact, this is what Shravaka and bodhisattva is usually what's put up against each other, not arhat versus bodhisattva. Sorry. Please. Follow. Yeah, yeah. I see the word Shravaka in, in, in a Pali text, in a, in a Theravada text. At that point, it's just synonymous with... I, Kind of, I guess, shramana at that point. Shramana. So there's this term, shramana, shramana, shramana. Shramana, which is a technically a novice monk. And then these two terms are kind of interchangeable in the Pali tradition in that way. And by the way, what's interesting is shramana in Chinese becomes uh, shaman, shaman. Shaman. That's how they translate it. And then you know the word shaman, right? So I don't know if there's any actual link there, but there could be. So, 
So they're sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm dropping a lot. Of no, them. no, I'm moving this fucker. I'm moving this. <laughs> I want to meet Mabella Dunn. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so she's... they're walking on the way. They're talking about all the cool shit they're going to do when they get deep into meditation. Yeah. Yes, and thank you for bringing me back to it. And there's, an in, I mean, the, um, there's a footnote in this about, like, so the Shravakas are all like, when I get to Shravasti, I'm going to enter Dhyana, and then everybody's going to know the Four Noble Truths. Um, it's a little, like, uncertain exactly what's going on there in terms of what, how that would work or how that would function. Uh, uh, one of these dudes rolling into town and, like, getting into a meditative state, and then every, all of a sudden everybody's going to know the Four Noble Truths. There's a footnote in here that it seems like when they're saying, like, I'll enter Diana, and then everybody, it seems like, no, I'm going to get to town, I'm going to teach everybody the Four Noble Truths. It, it's, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm going to go comic relief. I was just imagining them getting shot in slow motion as they're rolling into town to get to <laughs> meditate. But, but that's what it feels like. They're, like, getting the package ready, and it's like... Well, yeah, and again, you know, I've... I've I've already, <laughs> I've already said, I've already said this. You know, these people in this are representing these things. I've put up here. These are um, like Shariputra is considered the foremost in wisdom. Madhuryana is the foremost in the supernatural powers of the Siddhis. So these guys are representing these things. And so when they're like, when I get the Shravasti, I'm going to display my ability, type of a thing, right? Um, interesting though about. There's so many layers to this that I cannot even begin to like mention them all. But I also I wanted you to notice I'm going to enter a Diana. I'm going to enter a Diana. I'm going to enter Diana. I'm going to enter Diana. Well, I'm going to enter Samadhi. I'm going to enter Samadhi. There's a way in which these eight people can represent the eight liberations or the four Dianas or four Samadhis. So everything's getting very allegorical very quickly, and Vimaladana hasn't even stepped on the scene, right? Just yeah. A very I would say competition because this sutra is funny. Because of what Vimaladana does with her retort, I would say I, the reason I read it that way is because I think they are one upping, and then the bodhisattvas are like, well, I'm going to go, and then Vimaladana comes along. So, after that, so these guys roll into town. Discussing their thoughts in this manner, the eight Shravakas and the eight Bodhisattvas arrived at the gate of the great city of Shravasti. At that time, King Prasanajit's daughter, named Vimaladana, pure giving, was living in the great city of Shravasti. She was extraordinarily beautiful, though only eight years old. It was the eighth day of the second month, the day on which the star Pushya appears. Carrying a bottle of water in her hand, she went out to the city together with 500 Brahmin priests to bathe the Deva image for the star. When the 500 Brahmin priests saw the monks standing outside the city gate, they all considered this sight inauspicious. Then the oldest of the 500 Brahmin priests, a man named Brahma, who was 120 years old, told Vimaladana, these monks are standing outside the gate. 
This is most inauspicious. We'd better go back into the city and not meet them. If we meet them, it is not good for our sacrificial rites. Thereupon Vimaladana spoke in verse to the Brahmins, saying, These men are all passionless and most worthy of praise. They can wash away all evils from vast numbers of sentient beings. These men are pure and immaculate, for they thoroughly know the Four Noble Truths. But followers of wrong paths are impure, shrouded with delusion and ignorance. Innumerable rewards will accrue to those who make offerings to the world-honored one among gods and men. The field of blessings. Whatever is planted in this field will yield an inexhaustible harvest. In the three realms, the Buddha, the perfect and the Buddha, pure and perfect in discipline, rises unsullied from the mundane mire. He lives in the world as a skillful healer, curing and saving six sentient beings. In the world, the Buddha is supreme. He is the king of all dharmas, and these men are the Buddha's son. Some have attained arhatship, Others perform the deeds of a bodhisattva. How can the wise avoid them? Those who perform such wonderful deeds deserve the acclaim of this world. These wise men have long practiced giving. Brahmakaran, respect them, and surely all will go well. Let us praise these men who are endowed with a superior appearance, pure in mind. They are, they are our excellent field of blessings. Brahmakaran, Believe my words, and you will be joyful and free from worry. The oldest Brahmakaran, Brahma, said to Vimaladana in verse, Do not think like a fool or an idiot. Shun Shramanas when performing sacrificial rites. A seeker of happiness should not come close to one who is tonsured and dressed in monastic robes. Your parents will not approve of this, and we too feel ashamed of you. If you intend on... If you intend to give them things, that is also not auspicious. Please respect not these monks. Vimaladana said to the Brahmakaran in verse, Were I to fall to a miserable plane of existence, my parents, retinue, wealth, jewels, or even my own courage and health could not save me. Except for these men of awesome virtue, who could rescue me? To honor the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, I will give up life and limb. There is but one path to follow, to venerate the three jewels. Then the elderly Brahmakaran asked Vimaladana, You've never even seen the Buddha or the Sangha, nor have you heard the Dharma. How can you have such faith in them? Vimaladana replied to the Brahmakaran, Seven days after I was born, as I lay on a gold-legged bed in a lofty palace, I saw 500 gods flying in the air, praising the countless merits of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I heard their every word. Then a god, who had never seen the Buddha, or the Sangha, or heard the Dharma, asked one of the other gods, What is the Buddha like? Perceiving my own thoughts, and wishing to give joy to the god who had asked the question, the other gods all answered simultaneously in verse. The hair of the Buddha is reddish-blue, clean-glossy, and curling to the right. 
His face, like a moon, is the color of a hundred-petaled lotus flower bright. The snow-white single hair between his eyebrows spirals to the right. To all it is delightful to behold. His brows curve over his eyes like black bees surrounding a blue lotus flower. His jaws are like those of a lion. His eyes rove like those of a king of, a king of cattle. His lips are the color of a bright red gourd. His teeth are white, close, and even, as orderly as a line of flying geese. His tongue is so broad and long, it could cover his entire face. He speaks with perfect clarity. His voice gives joy to all who hear it. It resembles the song of a peacock, a swan, a lute of lapis lazuli, a kinara's bell, a galavinka bird, a cuckoo, a jiva jiva bird, or a musical instrument of any kind. His roar is like that of a lion. He soundly refutes all arguments and eradicates all defilements. His truthful words shatter every wrong view. Encircled by an assembly, he can resolve all queries and doubts. Never erroneous, but gentle and flexible, he gladdens and convinces all audiences. Steering clear of two extremes, correctly he teaches the middle path. He speaks in an ever-pleasant voice to the delight of all who hear him. He never flatters or distorts, and from his speech each hearer derives an understanding of his own. The Buddha's words are adorned with wisdom, like a garland woven with wonderful flowers. His neck is round, his arms are long and straight, his palms are flat and clearly marked with wheel signs of dharma chakras. His fingers, long and slender, have copper-colored nails. The Buddha's body is sturdy, balanced, and well-rounded. His waist is slender and curving like that of a lion. His navel, deep and round, his male organ, retracted like that of a stallion. Like a mountain of gold, his body is as robust as that of a dragon or an elephant. From each pore a hair grows, pointing upward and spiraling to the right. He has even hip bones and calves, and calves like a deer. His ankles gently curve with bones firmly joined. His soles are fully rounded and clearly marked with wheels of thousand-spoked wheels. Brahmacharyam. At that time, the gods in the air praised the Tathagata thusly. They also said, The Tathagata, the worthy one, ferries all sentient beings over to the other shore. He protects them with great kindness and compassion, like a great king of healers. He is not affected by aversion or attachment, just as a lotus is not soiled by the mire from which it grows. We, what we have mentioned is only an insignificant fraction of the merits of the world-honored one. Brahmakaran, seven days after I was born, I heard of the true merits of the world honor one. From that time on, I have not slept. I have not felt at all the stir of desire, hatred, or delusion. From that time on, I have not been attached to my parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, wealth, treasures, necklaces, clothes, cities, towns, gardens, or pavilions, or even attached to my own body and life. I have been doing but one deed remaining mindful of the Buddha. I go to any place where the Tathagata is teaching the Dharma and listen attentively. I absorb and remember all his teachings, never missing a single sentence in word or in meaning. Brahmakaran, I see Buddhas, world-honored ones, day and night. Brahmakaran, I never get tired of contemplating the Buddha, never feel satiated when hearing the Dharma, and never become weary of making offerings to the Sangha. When Vimaladana had thus praised the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, 
All 500 Brahmans, including the eldest, Brahma, brought forth supreme bodhicitta. Then Vimaladana got down from her carriage and walked toward the bodhisattva and shravakas. When she reached them, she bowed with her head at their feet. Then she approached the virtuous Shariputra with great respect and stood before him saying, I am a girl. My intelligence is shallow and my afflictions are great. I am unrestrained, indulge in mean things, and I am dominated by devious thoughts. May the virtuous Shariputra, out of compassion, explain the subtle, wonderful Dharma to me, so that after hearing it, I may have benefit in the long night and experience greater peace and happiness. But as she was speaking thus, King Prasanajit came. Hearing the Maladana's words, the king asked her, My dear, you lack no pleasures. Why do you look so sad? Why do you not sleep or enjoy the amusements of this world? King Prasanjit then spoke spoke in verse again to his daughter, saying, You are as fair as a celestial maiden. After bathing, you anoint yourself and put on perfumed clothes. You have necklaces and every precious ornament. Why are you so sad that you cannot sleep? Your country is rich and replete with treasures. Your parents' authority, absolute. What troubles you that you do not sleep? You are beloved by your kin and adorned by all people. And I am a glorious king. Why then are you not happy? What have you seen or heard that makes you so melancholy? Oh, what is it that you wish? Please tell me. Thereupon, Vimaladana answered her father in verse saying, Leading a household life, your majesty, do you not feel that the aggregates and elements and sense organs are all too fragile? Mundane existence is like a magic trick. Life flees past without a moment's pause. How can one sleep well after taking poison? How can one be joyful when dying? How can one expect to live when falling from a cliff? So it is to dwell in this world of appearances. If a person lives among serpents, how can he sleep or lust? The four elements are like poisonous snakes. How can one derive pleasure from them? When surrounded by enemies and hungry, how can one be happy? When surrounded by hostile nations, how can you, my father, be at ease? Ever since I saw the world honored one, I resolved to become a Buddha. Your majesty, never have I seen or heard that a bodhisattva relaxes in his efforts, even for an instant. End of part one. Questions? Ready on? I just wanted to note the, the part where she says to the virtuous Shariputra, where she's like, I'm just a girl, right? Which, yeah. Where she says, I'm a girl. My intelligence is just shallow, and my affliction's great, and I'm unrestrained, indulge in mean things, and I'm do- dominated by devious thoughts. When I hear that, I hear, no doubts, just a girl. I don't know if you know the band, I don't know if you know Gwen Stefani, but that song, it's a funny song because she takes the posture of, I'm just a girl, right? I'm like she's playing the I'm so sweet and then the roar, 
Vimaladana is, again, the way I read this is she's sort of being coy by saying to the Shariputra, I'm just a girl. I couldn't understand anything, right? So just if you heard that the wrong way, I want you to hear it the right way. Now she looks like, what's the in my head? Yes, which is not a bad look. It's not a bad thing. This is a side note, but like, why do they not like the... The monks, the Buddhists? Oh. Or is that... I mean, there's a lot going on in there, but you have to understand that the Brahmins that are the top of this caste system, for all intents and purposes, the Buddha sort of disavows the caste system. He's telling everybody, that's a a lie. So the Buddha... No, but (laughs) Buddhism threatens the authority of the Brahmin caste through and through. So Brahmins don't want to have a lot to do with a group that is disavowing their authority. They're hungry and they don't ever get laid. I mean, how do you fuck with those guys? Don't Who, the Brahmins? No, no, the monks. I mean, oh. it's like, how do you... Well, that's, that's, that's her point. You that's, find a way to hate them. Yeah, that's her point. Okay, so we're good. So now we're going to go back. So after the king steps in and is like, what's wrong, right? So now we're back. So then, how are we doing? T- oh, good, got time. So then, Vimaladana said to Shariputra, so now we're back to Shariputra. She says to Shariputra, Virtuous one, I want to ask you one question. May you take pity on me and explain the answer to me. The world on one says that you stand first in wisdom. Is this wisdom conditioned or unconditioned? If it's conditioned, then it's illusory and deceptive and not real. If it's it's an unconditioned dharma, then it does not arise. And a dharma which does not arise does not originate. Because it does not originate, virtuous one, your wisdom does not exist. (laughs) That's in his face. (laughs) Shariputra was rendered speechless. The virtuous Madhuryayana asked Sariputra, virtuous one, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? And Shariputra replied to Madhuryayana, the maiden does not ask about conditioned things. She inquires about the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is beyond speech. Therefore, I cannot answer in words. That's a smart Um, so just in case you haven't been coming and you might get a little lost, I do want to stop about this unconditioned condition thing. So samskrita, conditioned, or ah, samskrita, not conditioned, unconditioned, all right? And I, I'm not going to do a whole Dharma talk on these, but you just keep in mind that this means relative, it means conventional, it means dualistic, it means everything in this world. It means uh, everything being relative. I've talked in terms of, you know, is something big? Well, it's relative to what it's next to. Right? Is something loud? Well, it's relative to what it's auditorily next to. Is something beautiful? Well, it depends. Is this? Depends. Anything that you could answer with, well, it depends, that's conditional. It depends. It depends on something. Dependently originated? Unconditioned is 
like the, like the uh, Shariputra says, right? The maiden doesn't ask about the conditioned. The maiden doesn't ask about the usual stuff. The maiden asks about the unconditioned, that which is not relative, not dependent, just totally independent in a sense, right? And for that reason, it says, the maiden does not ask about conditioned things. She inquires about the ultimate truth. And the ultimate truth is beyond speech. Therefore, I cannot answer in words. So then, Vimaladana turns to Mudguliyana and says, Virtuous one, the world honor one says that you stand first in wielding the siddhis, the miraculous powers. Virtuous one, when using these miraculous powers, do you have sentient beings in mind or dharma in mind? If you have sentient beings in mind, your miraculous powers can't be real because sentient beings aren't real. But if you have dharma in mind, consider that all dharmas do not change, but by their nature are quiescent. Since they do not change, all dharmas, including your miraculous powers, are unattainable. And being unattainable, they are beyond discrimination. The virtuous Madhugayana was rendered speechless. Mahakashyapya turns to Madhugayana and asks, Virtuous one, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? And Madhugayana replied, The maiden's question is about the maiden's question about miraculous powers is based not on discrimination, but on the Tathagata's own enlightenment, which defies action and discrimination. It cannot be answered in words. Right. Should we do these one at a time? Yeah? So, questions about that? We got that, right? So, Maguyana is famous for these supernatural powers. Things like, oh, he, can, he has a divine eye, which means he doesn't just see the normal bandwidth of light. He's seeing ghosts, spectra, specters, being able to see vast distances as if they're right here. The divine eye. He's got the divine ear. He can hear things vast distances away. He can hear ghost inspectors speaking, right? He can read other people's minds. He can do all of this. And so Vimaladana asks, so like regarding these supernatural powers of yours, are these supernatural powers like reading other people's minds and stuff? Is it like supernatural powers towards these other sentient beings? Or is it like supernatural power in terms of the Dharma? And she says, because if it's supernatural power towards other beings, those other beings, the Buddha said, don't exist. They're phantasms. They're not real. And if they're about the Dharma, she says, the Dharma is ultimately unobtainable. And therefore, your supernatural powers are unobtainable. This is unobtainable. The unconditioned cannot be grasped, cannot be thought of or grasped. Totally beyond beyond. Right? So the, Mal the Maladon is like, so which is it, buddy? And you can't have it. You can't have it any which way, basically, is what she's saying. Yep. When you were talking in the beginning about the structure of these names, it was like what these people are really known for. Is it also the case of like the powers in the cities for these Buddhists are like things they think people actually attain that's a good thing? Because sometimes they talk about them as like, oh, you have the cities that you think is a superpower. It's really an obstacle to getting beyond to the next stage. That's oftentimes a move that's made. So sometimes they like to talk about it 
but it's not like you wouldn't go around bragging about I got the cities and stuff like that because that would be kind of like oh you don't realize that's not the cool thing it's the thing that comes after that this is like the obstacle that takes you off the path mm-hmm. so is in this text is it sort of like this guy is he thinks he's kind of cool because he has that or is okay. you understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying so first of all just start with this there are traditionally these five sometimes six supernatural powers they are all part of Indian thought about meditation. Um, in some schools, they're the goal. In some so- schools, like Buddhism, they're symptomatic. They're like symptomatic of enlightenment. Meaning if you start hearing ghosts, if you start seeing further than you should, well, you're having a rupture into enlightenment. And yes, in Buddhism, they're not to be st- st- strived for in that way. They are understood as a, what's that, scandalon, that Greek term for like a stumbling block, something that can trip you up, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a discourse about that. In fact, if you, if you don't know, within the Buddhist Vinaya, within the monastic rules, there's four things that get you excommunicated. There's the four worst, you kill somebody, take something that's not yours, have sex, or claim to have the siddhis. Oh. That'll get you out. Claiming to have the Siddhis. Not having them. (laughs) Claiming to have them. And what that was, as far as my research has shown, is that there was just this problem with monks being like, yeah, I got the supernatural powers. And then people soliciting them for fortune telling, rituals, all kind of stuff. And so the Buddha said, if you start developing them, you can't tell anybody. And then some people read it as like an ego thing. There's all kinds of things, but I don't, whatever it is, it's the fourth thing that'll get you kicked out is talking about these. But again, there's no dispute about their existence. And again, they're symptom, supposedly symptomatic. Not, nothing special, actually, in a way. Sort of. Madhuyana is, yes, he's the, considered the foremost in these. All kinds of stories about him, like going into the hell realms to save his mother, uh, going up to heavenly realms, doing all of this stuff. I read, so this sutra is one of those sutras that is, in a way, you hear it in Vimaladana's discourse. She's saying, You're, you, you guys' Theravadan way is too uh, Atman-centered. It's too, like, fixed on selves in that way. Where it's, it, and so she's asking him like, yo, at this ultimate level, is your supernatural powers towards sentient, are you impressing sentient beings with your supernatural powers? Because if you think so, you missed it. And so there is a kind of a Mahayana reworking of what this stuff means. Similar to the Vajra Sutra, similar to the Diamond Sutra, where it's like, oh, entering the stream. Well, this is what it means to enter the stream. Oh, the supernatural powers are, oh, wisdom? This is what wisdom really is, Vimaladana is going to tell him, right? That's what the, the introduction is about, that I mean, they're just all just kind of saying, oh, yeah, and I'm going to do this because this is my thing, and I'm going to do that, and it's, yeah. it's very ego. Yeah, and that's why I answered your question when I said, yeah, I read it in a way where they're one-upping each other because I, I hear that throughout this sutra, this sort of one-upmanship. And actually, that's what's being discussed is any kind of uh, disputation, debate, this kind of one-upmanship, and Vimaladana is going to show everybody how to do it. How to, how to discourse not like this in a way, which is like, that's gold, to know how to discourse without argumentation or without fighting in that way. 
Why, how is the Dharma known as being unattainable? The Mahayana Sadharma, subtle Dharma, is, is that. Whereas in the Theravada, there was a sense in which Dharma, and dar, dar, the root of the word Dharma means to have or to hold. Like I've got it. And so there was a way that the original meaning of Dharma was like, you've, you've, you have, there's something to get, and you've got it. The Mahayana say, no, the real Dharma is not that. Not that. Not dar. <laughs> not dar. That's the real dar, is the dar that doesn't die in that sense, right? All right. Let's see if we go. Actually, obviously, we're not going to get to the bodhisattvas. That'll be from next week. That'll be fun. But let's do a few more shavakas. So then, Vimaladana said to Mahakashepya, virtuous one. The world honor one says that you stand first in the practice of austerities. Virtuous one, after attaining the eightfold liberation, if you accept or for an instant think of accepting offerings from sentient beings out of compassion for them, how do you intend to repay such favors? Do you repay them with your body or with your mind? If you intend to repay them with your body, you certainly cannot do so, for the body is neutral by nature and is not different from grass, trees, walls, tiles, or gravel. If you intend to repay them with your mind, you also cannot do so, for the mind changes incessantly from one moment to the next. Besides body and mind, there is only the unconditioned. If all that remains is the unconditioned, who repays the favors? Mahakashapya was also rendered speechless. The virtuous Subhuti asked Mahakashapya, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? And Mahakashapya replied to Subhuti saying, the maiden's question is about the reality of dharmas. It cannot be answered in words. Then, Alara, uh, then Vimaladana said to Subhuti, virtuous one, the world honor one says that you stand first among those who do not engage in disputes. Does the practice, want, does the practice of non-disputation have the nature of existence or the nature of suchness? If you say it has the nature of suchness, consider that suchness is characterized by neither arising nor ceasing. What is characterized by neither arising nor ceasing cannot be differentiated. What cannot be differentiated is suchness itself. What is suchness itself is devoid of action. What is devoid of action is beyond speech. What is beyond speech is inconceivable. What is inconceivable transcends expression itself. If you say non-disputation has the nature of existence, Consider that existence is by nature illusory and deceptive. What is illusory and deceptive is not practiced by arhats. The virtuous Subhuti was also rendered speechless. Purnamaitreya asked Shibuti, why don't you answer Vimaladana's question? And Shibuti replied to Purnamaitreya, it stands to reason that I should say nothing in reply because keeping silent is my only delight. Furthermore, the maiden's question is about the dharma, which is apart from all play words. 
whatever answer I might give would be wrong. To say nothing about the nature of dharma is the practice of non-disputation. I've been trying to find the exact meaning or like Sanskrit and what it is. The, you see the word, I see that term a lot in these sutras, especially in this book. Play words would be like, I mean, it gets tricky, but play words would be like not all rhetoric, but, a, but the family of rhetoric. And what I mean by that, you can think of play words as like, um, you know, the, cla- the classic example of rhetoric and therefore play words would be something like, um, so when did you stop beating your wife? Loaded question, right? There's no actual way to answer that because it's, it's loaded and trapped. That's a play word. That's what Buddhists mean by play words is like setting up a, a rhetorical situation or a form of rhetoric that is play words. You're just playing with words, it's, you know, not actual meaning, not actual stuff. You're just setting up provisional syllogisms and ideas and then kind of being like, aha, right? And so he says, yeah, where he says that the, the, the main question is about the Dharma, which is apart from play words, and whatever I, I will give would be wrong. And that's the idea of exactly like the how long have you, when did you stop beating your wife? Any answer I give is wrong because you've trapped me, right? That's a kind of play word thing. So it's a, I would think of it as akin to rhetoric, but all rhetoric is not necessarily bad in that type of play word sense. It sounds like it's not like a word is a play word versus another word is not a play word, but it's the use of rhetoric as a way to win art. Yes. Yeah. I don't think they're talking about specific words being play words. I think they're talking about playing with words. Do you have... I don't know the dates around this time of this, but there's a distinction between jalpa and vada. And vada is when you're speaking with another person in the search of the truth about the dharma. And in jalpa, play words occur a lot. And so, what is his name? Shabuti? This is our Shabuti, yeah. Yeah, so if he's signaling that he thinks that the questioning is in the format of jalpa, then he won't engage. Because to engage in jalpa is not to seek discourse of rhetoric or logic for the purposes of truth-seeking, so he might be opting out. But that would require that the dates of that distinction are at this time. That sounds exactly like what's being discussed, okay. though. So whether it's that exact term and that exact body yeah. of ideas, but that idea. Yeah, Fred. Could you just repeat the last couple of lines from the text? From that one? Yeah, your last, your last reading. Yeah, so, um, so Subhuti says to Maitreya, because he's like, yo, why didn't you answer her? Right? And she's Subhuti, uh, da, da, it stands to reason, so this is Shibuti saying, it stands to reason that I should say nothing in reply because keeping silent is my only delight. Furthermore, the maiden's question is about the Dharma, which is apart from play words. Whatever answer I may give will be wrong. To say nothing about the nature of Dharma is, is the practice of non-disputation. So that's a kind of also a Vajra Sutra twist where Shibuti is the master of non-disputation or master of this kind of debate. And this is kind of saying, yeah, not to engage in debate is kind of a thing, you know. Again, it's doing a little Mahayana twist on an original Theravadan idea in that way. Uh, let's do one more. One, two. Yeah, we'll do one more. Yeah. So, so then Vimaladana says to Purna Maitreya, virtuous one, 
the world on one says that you stand first among the Dharma teachers. When you teach, do you teach the doctrine that there are states and realms or the doctrine that there are no states and no realms? If you teach that there are states and realms, you are the same as an ordinary person. Why? Because only ordinary people teach that there are states and realms. In this regard, you do not go beyond the doctrine of an ordinary person. If you teach the absence of states and realms, you teach that nothing exists. And if nothing exists, how can you be called the first among Dharma teachers? Purnamaitreya, too, was rendered speechless. The virtuous Rivata turns and asks Purnamaitreya, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? Purnamaitreya replied to Rivata saying, the maiden does not, does not ask about conditioned things, but about the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is beyond speech, therefore there is no way to answer. All right, questions? Just to clarify on that one, um, she asked him, hey, you're such a great Dharma teacher, right? So do you teach about states and realms or no states and realms? Just quickly, what they're kind of referring to, um, basically the realms are the six paths of rebirth, maybe also the 18 dattus, these the six senses, the six sense objects, and the six consciousnesses that arise when they meet. Those are the 18 realms, the 18 dattus. Buddhism or Buddhist cosmology or the Buddhist worldview is usually about seeing this world as the 18 realms, which is everything that can be seen and all the eyes that can see the things that can be seen, all the ears and the hearing, the things that can be heard. So all the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and brains, all the stuff, and then the consciousnesses that arise from the meeting of eyes with light, ears, and sound. Those are the 18 realms. And anything that you could imagine, think of, experience, see, smell, or taste, whatever, is one of those 18, in one of those 18 dattus. So the whole world can be understood as the 18 dattus. And then states, probably mind states, citta, because Buddhism talks about the mind being in a greedy mind state, deluded mind state, angry mind state. These are the states in the realms. And so she asked, so when you teach the Dharma, do you teach uh, that we're living in a samsara with all these uh, dattus and all these mind states? Or do you not teach that? And he's like, if you do teach that, then you're totally missing it. You're totally missing it. But if you teach that there's no states or realms, then you teach nothing exists. And that's, that's nihilism. That's, so what is it, buddy? That's, that's what she's doing to each of, these, each of these dudes. She's like, so which is it? And again, they're rendered speechless. Now, they're all kind of smart in that way where they all know that it's better just to not say anything, Right? But that's the little game that's being played here. All right. What do you think? Should I read through the rest of the Shravakas? And then we can start with the Bodhisattvas next time? Okay. So then Vimaladana says to Revata, virtuous one, the world honor one says that you stand first among those who practice meditation. When you practice meditation, do you, do you rely on your mind or not? If you rely on your mind to enter meditation, then your meditation is unreal, since your mind is unreal, like an illusion. If you enter meditation without relying on your mind, 
than such external objects as grass, trees, branches, leaves, flowers, and fruit should also be able to achieve meditation. Why? Because they too have no mind. The virtuous Ravata was also rendered speechless. The virtuous Aniruddha asked Ravata, virtuous one, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? Ravata replied to Aniruddha, the maiden's question belongs in the realm of the Buddhas, as Shravaka cannot answer her. Vimaladana said further, are the, dharma of the, are the dharma of Buddhas and the dharma of Shravakas different? So, he sets up this opposition. Ravata sets up this op- opposition saying that, the, that her question belongs to the Buddha's realm. Shravaka can't answer it. So she's setting up this, op- or he is setting up this opposition between the Shravakas and the Buddha-bound Bodhisattvas, right? And so she says further, are the Dharma of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and the Dharma of Shravakas different? If they were different, then the unconditioned, then the unconditioned would be split in two. All saints and sages practice the unconditioned dharma. An unconditioned dharma does not arise. If it does not arise, it is not dualistic. And if it is not dualistic, it is suchness itself. For suchness is not dualistic. Therefore, virtuous Rivata, how can you say that? Then Vimaladana said to Aniruddha, virtuous one, the world honor one says that you stand first among those who have the deva eye, the divine eye. Virtuous one, is an object seen with the divine eye existent or non-existent? If you regard what you see as existent, then you take the view of eternalism and a self. If you regard what you see as non-existent, then you take the view of nihilism. Apart from these two extremes, you see nothing. The virtuous Aniruddha was also rendered speechless. The virtuous Ananda asked Aniruddha, virtuous one, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? Aniruddha replied to Ananda saying, the maiden's question is aimed at destroying all arbitrary terms. Therefore, it cannot be answered in arbitrary terms. Then Vimaladana said to Ananda, virtuous one, the world honor one says that you stand first among the learned. Is your knowledge that of the real meaning of things or that of the words? If it is knowledge of the real meaning of things, consider that the real meaning is beyond speech. What is beyond speech cannot be known through the through auditory consciousness. What cannot be known through auditory consciousness cannot be expressed in speech. If your knowledge is that of the words, it is meaningless. For the world honor one says that one should rely on the ultimate meaning of a discourse, not on the mere words. Therefore, virtuous Ananda, you are not learned, nor do you understand the ultimate meaning. The virtuous Ananda, too, was rendered speechless. Dharma prince, Bodhisattva, Manjushri, asked the virtuous Ananda, virtuous one, 
Why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? And Ananda answered, The maiden asks about the learning which has nothing to do with words. Therefore, it cannot be explained by words. She inquires about equality. Equality is not the mind because it has nothing to do with mental functions. This doctrine is beyond those in the stage of learning. How can I say anything about it in reply? It is in the domain of the other shore, reached by the Tathagatas, those Dharma kings. I'm going to stop there because then she asks Manjushri, and we're not, we're not ready. <laughs> we are not ready. Manjushri's answer is nutso. It's probably the most nutso point. And we're like, the, the, literally, when you're reading it, it goes, and the needle scratches because it's that crazy what he says. So you'll hear it. Yeah. So this is an eight year old child. This is an eight year old child. And it's not true. Ganga Same kind of retort the same well if you you know why would you ask me that if, if would you ask a bodhisattva that would you ask and the buddhist like mm-hmm. exactly so i can't answer you a lot of the same perils from the females as uh, figures that we've been reading about yes and what i what you will hear probably next week are the literal um in some points, actual repetition of the parts of the Vimalakirti Sutra where there's the Naga princess or just the, the princess who schools um, one of the, also one of the Shravakas and turns herself into all these different forms and stuff. That kind of happens in this too. And so there's a lot of crossover between that portion of the Vimalakirti Sutra and this Vimaladana and the Gangotara. And all three of them, I want people to recognize, yes, it's a woman here, a girl who is representing the. It's besides the Buddha, the most enlightened person here is going to be Vimaladana, by far. And again, for me, that's why this is a sutra. There, actually, again, we didn't get to the parts that I wanted to get, or that are the exciting parts where it's it says the things I always want a sutra to say. That that basically it's going to say. Spoiler alert! Explicitly. Buddhas are beyond male and female. You're an idiot if you think the Buddha is male or female. You've missed what everything we're talking about if you're putting a Buddha into a gendered sexed class. And that is something that to me, as a Mahayana kind of practitioner, so obvious, so duh. How could you go on for so long about non-duality and go on for so long about that and then be like, oh yeah, and of course you have to be a man to know that. No. So clearly Buddhism and a lot of these sutras and a lot of the translations have been infiltrated by patriarchy and all these things and have been sort of re-sculpted or rewritten. But there are all these sutras, these three in particular, that are saying it explicitly. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Sometimes the dudes, the men, are the dumbest ones. And actually it takes an eight-year-old girl to explain this to all of them. right? And so also think, too, that there's a lot going on here in terms of these people representing things and not being historical figures. 
and therefore King Prasanajit didn't necessarily have a daughter named this. This is a representation of something. And one of the dudes is going to say, back off, you're a girl. And she's basically going to say, you're an idiot. And again, that's the message I've been looking for in a sutra for so long. There's sutras that dance around it, that get very close to saying it, but this is the most explicit that it says, Buddhas are neither male nor female, and you're an idiot if you think otherwise. So. I also think that the ones we went through, the way they back off shows some sort of misunderstanding of the position themselves. I noticed that they, they're backing off by thinking, well, she's speaking about the ultimate truth, or she's asking about that, so I ought to back off and not say anything. But I thought the teaching from Nagarjuna is that the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. So backing off by putting forward the idea that there, she's asking to speak about the ultimate truth is wrong-headed. Instead, what they should do is they should take like the neti-neti strategy and try to triangulate the person towards the idea by pushing on other buttons because that's an acceptable strategy. But to back off by the ultimate truth and then be silent is to sort of not understand where that's supposed to go in the Madhyamaka tradition. Right, and what the Madhyamaka and Nagarjuna and Yoga, all of that is the Bodhisattva path. And exactly, these guys are fully representing their school, okay. which is to be... Backing off. Exactly. Thinking it's, it's like some truth you can't ever articulate in any words whatsoever. Exactly. Rather than thinking that you can give incomplete versions of it when you speak. Yes. And that you can't ever fill it out. Yes. And if I were to read Manjushri's answer, right. it would be too much right now, but it's what he's saying. So he'll be the first to step up to actually not remain silent. And then she'll say, but the thing is, if, they, if she continues forward, will any of them try to do the triangulation strategy or they're just going to keep pushing on her? Stay tuned. Okay. Stay tuned because it's exactly the point. Yeah. And I love that you know all this because the idea is that these things are. I said this before. I've said this before about like the Platonic dialogues and like Plato's nice and it's nice to go back and forth. But what happens when you have a, a trilectical argument where you actually have three players or a quadrilectrical argument where you actually have Shravakas, Bodhisattvas, Buddhas, regular people? So you actually have four, like a, again, not a dialogue, a quadrilogue, I guess, of some sort. So it's a very advanced type of presentation of ideas in that way. So stay tuned on that. I kind of wish that one of these guys would just tell her something like, even asking this question, it's coming from a dualistic mind or something like that. You know? That'll be in the realm over here. Now, nobody's actually going to say that just like that. But you're thinking, and all of your thinking is so right in that I've trained you all so well to be good bodhisattvas, to recognize the problems with this. And like, so your answer, awesome bodhisattva answer, awesome bodhisattva answer. Yeah, and that's, again, what this sutra is in the business of doing is laying out this sort of old school way of thinking of these things and then leading you to the new school in that way. Right on time. So... Oh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think you can see why I like the suture.